participants are sitting up here with me. My name is Irving Howe, and I will just say a word or two about each of them very briefly. Cynthia Ozick, who is to my right here, is a very well-known writer, the author of six books, The Pagan, Rabbi and Other Stories, Bloodshed and Three Novellas, Levitation, Five Fictions, Art and Order Essays, Trust the Novel, and the Cannibal Galaxy Novel. She has appeared in many journals, has won an astonishing number of awards and honorary degrees. <clears throat> Oscar Huelos. <laughs> Oscar Huelos was born in and lives in New York City, a graduate of the City College of New York, from which he holds a master's degree in writing. He has written two novels, Our House in the Last World and The Mambo King's Play, Songs of Love, for which he was just awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you. The rest of us live in hopes. <laughs> Frederick Tooten was born in New York and raised in the Bronx. In 73, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. His first novel, The Adventures of Mao and the Long March, appeared in 1971. He currently directs the graduate program in literature and creative writing at the City College of New York. His most recent novel is Talion, A Brief Romance. <clears throat> Wesley Brown is an associate professor. Where's Wesley? Here he is, Wesley. Wesley Brown is an associate professor, professor of English at Rutgers University. He published a novel called Tragic Magic in 1978. He's the author of a play called Boogie Woogie and Booker T in 1987. He has contributed to journals, many poems, and short stories. Faye Chang, where's Faye? Faye Chang is the author of two volumes of poetry in The City of Contradictions and Myra's Song. She has written a play based on her father's story, Laundry Man, which was commissioned by the New York Chinatown History Project. Her screenplay, <coughs> Mia Vita, was commissioned by Third World Newsreel. She is the former director of the Basement Workshop in Chinatown. <coughs> Mary Gordon, directly to my left, was born in Long Island, educated at Barnard College, Syracuse University, the author of three novels, Final Payments, The Company of Women, both of which won the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize, Men of Angels, and Temporary Shelter, a collection of short stories. Her most recent novel is The Other Side. She lives in upstate New York, but she tells me that that condition will soon be remedied. <laughs> <laughs> Did I leave anyone out? Uh, there's Howard over here. No, I got all six. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, when you bring six people li like these together, the expectation of uh, unanimity or even concord is utopian, but that's what makes it interesting. Um, and one of the participants, Cynthia Ozick, uh, has a strong disagreement with the original wording of the uh, panel as it was advanced by uh, pen, and she is asked to read a, <coughs> a brief, <coughs> excuse me, she's asked to read a brief statement uh, specifying her objections, after which we will proceed with the panel. Um, thank you. Irving Howe called us hyphenated, and um, 
one of the questions as it was given to us, is working okay? Uh, one of the questions as it was given to us in advance used the phrase ethnic subculture. So I came, um, not so, I will participate of course, but I'm, I'm as an antagonist actually, since as writers we're united in being fairly passionate about not abusing words, I'd like to point out the dictionary definition of ethnic. So far I'm the only one who's used it, but believe me that's the premise of this panel. In my um, Webster's New Collegiate, which is, I'm happy to say, not up to date with the jargon of current sociology, the first meaning of ethnic is given as follows, neither Jewish nor Christian, pagan. That's the meaning of this Greek word. Um, does anyone want to be ticked off as an ethnic? The sense, of, the sense of goodwill and the desire for inclusiveness that is behind the formation of a panel such as this one goes without saying. But there's a terrible paradox in it. The goodwill directed toward inclusiveness is undermined and annihilated by the result. And the result is exclusion from the center, exclusion from the mainstream, or what is nowadays called marginalization. <coughs> Where is the wasp? on this panel. The possibility was discussed, I'm told, and then set aside as not to the purpose. Well, the result is as usual. The WASP occupies what's called the mainstream, and we hear Asian, Hispanic, African American, Italian, Jewish, Irish Catholic represent ethnic subcultures. Particularly as a Jew, I want to protest the term subculture as applicable to Jewish culture. And as a Jewish American, I want to protest the term subculture as undermining the intent of the kind of society we are covenanted through the Constitution to try to enact for ourselves. The Founding Fathers, a miraculous bunch of geniuses gave us a covenantal theory of a constitution binding diverse bloodlines through an act of intellectual allegiance to a set of jurisprudential principles. And this is a biblical, which is to say Jewish idea. Not so parenthetically, we can't overlook the fact that some of those early Enlightenment geniuses were philosophical oxymorons since they owned slaves. Without the Hebrew Bible, there would be no Fifth Amendment. The Bible is the explicit source of the Fifth Amendment and of multiple strands in common and constitutional law. Quite aside from the Puritan Hebraic sources that are part of the American heritage, the biblical legacy is intrinsic to our language and literature. As a Jew then, I feel myself to be both substratum and bedrock of the intellectual foundations of American civilization and of the West in general. Here is a relevant quote from the literary critic Jeffrey Hartman of Yale. Yet Judaism, he says, is the third pillar of Western civilization, the others being Christianity and the classics, a civilization presently under attack for its parochialism and feverishly expanding its consciousness of the other without having fully acknowledged the other in its midst. One more minute. So, <laughs> as a Jew, I am distressed by the term ethnic subculture because I take it to be an untruth. But if my background were Asian or Hispanic or if my great-grandparents had been kidnapped from a far continent and brought here in chains to be enslaved, if I were a central southern or East European Gentile, I would still be offended by the term ethnic or ethnic subculture. 
It's true that the concept of the melting pot was a bad one, another well-meaning notion rooted in goodwill but leading to pernicious consequences. Its influence on my own life was to give me a name, not my own. The newer concept that came to replace it, pluralism, is a beautiful idea, allowing natural expression for all. But the ethnic ideology is not pluralism. It's a, it's a corruption of pluralism. It divides between the mainstream, which we take to be WASP culture, and the ethnics, an ideological segregation, something like the division between Aryan and non-Aryan, though I will be the first to admit the exaggeration of those terms. The American idea is that we are all admitted to the mainstream by virtue of our participation in this society. I find it a curious and somewhat chilling thing that the most eminent promulgator of ethnicity in this country today, the editor of a work called The Invention of Ethnicity, happens to be a middle-aged German-born scholar at Harvard. Having grown up in a society only recently dedicated to selecting out inferior ethnics, he is now charting our divisions for us. In short, in my view, ethnicity is the opposite of, the enemy of, pluralism. It divides us into politically competing bloodlines rather than allowing us to see ourselves as harmonious communities interested in one another. It undermines the real meaning of culture, which is not rooted in bloodlines or kinship, but rather in ideas, including the idea of history. Pluralism is intellectual and puts all of us into the center, into the American mainstream. Ethnicity consigns every one of us sitting on this panel into the abyss of marginality, a pit from which no writer once consigned there can easily emerge. Does anyone on the panel want to comment on that? Uh, Cynthia, I beg your pardon. But um, I don't think uh, things are changing, and um, America is becoming so uh, interested in the uh, hidden uh, riches that uh, exist in the uh, different cultural groups. And um, you're talking, New York is a city of such diverse energy. It's a European city, it's an artistic city. And I think that if you take this value system, and if you're talking about Wisconsin, I think maybe it may be true, but I think the fact is is that uh, people are hungry for what quote ethnic groups are offering right now, and I think that it's you know you got to call you know I mean every book has its subject and every language has its uh, sort of uh, vocabulary and every national history has its own heritage and and this is what writers use. I mean I understand what you're saying about um, not wanting to be. Uh, pegged down and so forth, but I think, for myself, I think it's changing and I see it happening for a lot of different, quote, you know, ethnic writers. Anyone else? I want to say a word or two. <coughs> uh, very likely the founding fathers didn't anticipate the problems that are raised by words like ethnicity, pluralism, subculture, but then they didn't anticipate that there would be people coming here from 50 or 60 different cultures and nations throughout the world with a vast mingling of languages and ways of life. There were many things the Founding Fathers didn't anticipate. And one of the troubles with the United States is the constant resor <coughs> resort to, indeed, the genius of the Founding Fathers, who by their very nature couldn't anticipate everything. Marginality. I haven't said anything yet, so why are you booing? 
marginality. Uh, I don't think it's an abyss. Uh, I don't mind being marginal. When I look at the United States of Ronald Reagan and George Bush, I find it rather convenient to be marginal. That's mixing realms. That's what? Mixing realms, known as mixing milchig and fleischig. Well, milchig and fleischig are not realms. Uh, subcultures. Very well, we don't like the word. The word ethnic is, disturbs us in some ways, but the reality to which these words loosely point remains a reality. It remains the reality that the people sitting at this table came from groups, communities, cultures, whatever word you wish to use, hyphenated, which were distinctive and separate in the United States, which found great difficulty. Uh, Cynthia says, we're all admitted to the mainstream, like hell we are. When people from some of these communities that were sitting up here uh, can become president of the United States, then uh, we'll all be admitted to the mainstream. But we're not. And in any case, even those of us who have been admitted to the mainstream had a journey to get there from the distinctive separate communities. And that indeed is the subject, a literary journal. And that's the subject of the discussion today. So I will begin with the first question. However, if you would prefer that we stop right now on the grounds of Cynthia's objection, uh, I am perfectly ready. No, okay. Then let me begin with the first question. The people sitting here at this table are writers. They come from different cultures, subcultures, call them what you will, communities. Let's use the word community, it's a neutral term. They come from different communities, minority communities, different environments. And the question I want to put to you is, how did emerging or being part of these communities with their distinctive styles of life, their distinctive value systems, how did this affect your experience as a writer, your becoming a writer? Was it enabling? Was it disabling? Did it provide you with what one critic once called the blessing of a writer, namely an inescapable subject, a subject which imposed itself upon you as a writer. And for that matter, have you ever wanted to escape from the inescapable subject? <laughs> That's amazing. I, I think I'll just jump in, uh, say a few things. Uh, when Cynthia asks, where is the wasp among us? I have to put up half of my body because half of it's wasp. <laughs> I'll volunteer half of myself in that category. I understood when we were asked to do this panel, which I'm very happy to be on among this distinguished group of writers, uh, I thought we were really talking about our cultural backgrounds. Uh, I never thought, I don't think the word ethnic really was appropriate, it didn't matter to me anyway. It meant to me, what did you hear when you grew up as a language first? What, what people speaking in your household? How did that language affect your writing or made you think about the, the other language, the English language? What kind of things in the family did you witness that stayed with you as a writer and meant the most important things to you as a writer? That means your religious, your religious life, your, your cuisine, you know, your habits of waking and speaking to each other in the morning. I have friends, among WASP friends, who never say good morning to each other when they wake up. They never ask each other what they've dreamt, but in my household, everyone did. <laughs> everyone wanted to know with great detail what their dreams were the night before. <laughs> It's amazing to many of my friends that I'm still interested in that. But I thought those are the matters that we were to talk about. And really, the final thing was working 
working, writing through the cultural backgrounds, which I took as a pun, which meant going beyond it, if it's possible, if you can ever go beyond your cultural background, and working through it as a material. So those are the issues I would like to go to. And, uh, go ahead. and, and to say, just briefly, um, I, think, uh, I think that for a very long time, it was my intention and my desire not to talk about my cultural background, not to talk about the most interesting, I think, part of it, which was the Italian-Sicilian part of it, not to do it, not to write about it, not to show it publicly in any way, because I thought that that was a kind of aesthetic humiliation. I thought that um, it was a capitulation to the anecdotal, to the most facile and soap opera-esque soap aspect of a writer's duty to write. That's what I thought for a very long time. Um, and finally, you know, I don't know um, if I was even able to. I didn't come to that issue until very late in life. But I do think that these matters are, um, they impregnate themselves on us and all of us at this panel. However, we want to discuss the terms of that impregnation. It's a bad metaphor, perhaps. Um, so I'm just saying, I'm, I think there is an issue of our relationship to our cultural background. And I think when Mr. Howe presents further questions, we'll see how that thing unfolds. Someone else? How did growing up in the kind of environment from which you came, the distinctive community, how did this affect your desire, your effort to become a writer? What did it do in terms of the material you dealt with? Such questions I want to put to you. Someone else? Wesley. Uh, well, I, I think for me, um, language uh, was central to the mo not only my family experience, but also the experience of living uh, both in a neighborhood that um, was in, in Harlem, um, on the, in East Harlem at the time. And I guess it had to do with talk, that, that I was com overwhelmed by talk, talk by my parents, uh, my sister, relatives, in beauty parlors, barbershops, uh, in the streets, and in a situation where, as a child, it was uh, it was conveyed to me that it was uh, that I was to be more seen than heard, uh, and that talking or expression verbally was something that adults were more equipped to do, and it was best for me to listen. I think I became fascinated with this. Um, this, this effort that was um, uh, given over to adults that in some ways I was not uh, uh, ready for. So I think that, um, that I discovered that words had um, not only the power to instruct, uh, but they had the power to uh, have people sort of invent a personality to, sh uh, to show off, to protect themselves, and also to hurt, to cause pain. Um, there's an example I remember of um, an aunt of mine who um, had a very, had a way of talking with her women friends uh, in a kind of scrambled form of English that um, she called tut. And as an example, uh, say something like, um, did you hear what he said? Uh, they would say something to the effect, um, did uh, you uh, hear uh, what he had said? Uh? And this was a way uh, to 
express themselves in a way, of course, that I was struck by the fact that men were not, did not understand what these women were talking about. <laughs> and uh, to their dismay, uh, were never told. And so here, I was in a situation where my aunt and her friends would speak their minds while at the same time concealing what they were saying to others, and in this case, to men. Um, their language I found magical in that respect. Um, I also soon found that, that words in the mouths of people who were, uh, that I seemed to be connected to both uh, by tribe and by blood could also have disastrous consequences. Um, I remember in the early 1950s, um, in Harlem, an uncle of mine was, was shot and killed by a policeman uh, for apparently uh, talking out of turn, which was, I recall very uh, vividly, what I remember hearing people saying as to what provoked the policeman who, who was off duty and who had been drinking to shoot my uncle, so talking out of turn. So I think the more that I listen to people um, use words, uh, I guess, to create what uh, Zerner Hurston calls crayon enlargements of life, that I, I began to see that uh, language was a way, I think, for both myself and people who uh, I was drawn to, that language was a way to invent oneself, to invent oneself in the face of not only a family sometimes, sometimes a tribe, and, and in the face of power, or the powerful in whatever form the powerful took, who would try consistently to talk people out of their account of their own lives. And it became clear to me, uh, even before I ever thought about writing, that, um, that the people that I was connected to uh, very, very strongly seemed to take a lot of pleasure in using the language, messing with it, bending it, violating it in order to create themselves in the face of a hostile environment. Mr. Huelos wants to say something. You know, um, my experience is that uh, when you're growing up in New York, uh, in my neighborhood there were a lot of uh, uh, people who uh, used to uh, sell what was called wolf tickets. I mean, they were rather imaginative uh, storytellers. You go into my household, I was raised around loquacious Cuban women who love to talk. In all this uh, exchange, though, there's very little information to fill in the uh, gaps about what life is really about. And so I think that um, you're growing up in sort of, I, I don't like to use the word ignorant, but you're growing up in a household in which you don't have all the access, um, access to all the information in the world. And so what you do is you start filling in your own blanks and you try to make your own world. And for myself, I know that it led to writing because there was so much I didn't know. And uh, through that process, I started discovering my own family's roots, Cubanness, their own histories, also the histories of Latins in New York. And um, for me, it came out of uh, necessity. <coughs> I think that um, to use, can you hear me? 
Can you hear me now? Okay. Is this better? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think that in the, although I, I have to come clean too, I'm Irish, Italian, and Jewish. Um, so I, I have a, a, a real mix, but actually the culture I was brought up in most dominantly was Irish. And to use language for the Irish is never a straightforward uh, enterprise. Um, there's, a, there's a very famous thing that an Irish person will tell you after he or she has spoken for a long time. They'll talk a long time, then they'll say, mind you, I've said nothing. <laughs> and there was a tremendous uh, emphasis in the Irish Catholic world in which I was brought up against exhibitionism. Uh, there was a tremendous uh, prize put on secrecy, hiding, uh, being inconspicuous, particularly for a woman. And so there was a lot of conversation that went on, but very little information, particularly of the emotional sort, that was ever released. To express oneself emotionally was considered really bad form. To complain, to even express joy, that was considered, to, to express joy or pleasure was to put yourself in danger. Um, and if the outside world thought you were doing too well, you could really expect them to come down on you. So I think to speak at all for an Irish American is an act of rebellion. Um, and although there was a certain amount of talking in the house, there was talking to keep secrets. It was a kind of terrific shell game so that words were being used very quickly and often with great eloquence, but it was to conceal information rather than to reveal it. And I, I often really laugh at people saying, well, did you ever, you know, talk that out with your family? <laughs> like, you know, you would say, I really resent you for the, what you did, you know, when I was three years old. I mean, you might as well have lit an atomic bomb in our living room as, and I think that's a very common experience for immigrants. And I also think that when we talk about ethnicity, whether or not we like to use it, we have to factor in the issue of class. So I think that, peop that people in the working class use language in a very different way, think of language as having a different function, feel more embattled, feel that the world is more hostile to them, and often use language as a carapace beneath which they hide for protection. So when I was growing up, I think that uh, speaking was a very dangerous act. It was certainly um, discouraged in my family. Uh, nobody, I think I, I, you know, people knew that my father was a writer and they really, he might as well have been, been a drug dealer. Um, and the fact that I'm a writer, they think is just, they think it's proof that the Jewish part of my heritage poisoned and invaded the bloodstream. <laughs> so. I certainly got no encouragement from, from my background, except that in having to be quiet, and I remember when we were little, you had to stand, we had to stand next to our parents at these family dinners, stand in complete silence. Now that's very good training for a writer because you hear a lot. But we were encouraged to, to hear in silence, but not to speak. Uh, there have been some very interesting statements on experiences in communities, let's call it that, uh, uh, growing up, but I would like to press a little further. How did these things affect your work as a writer? What did it do, enable or disable your work as a writer? Ms. Chang. Well, um, well, 
Well, I didn't speak English until I was in the first grade. And I think that was because um, my parents came from Canton. You know, their marriage were, was arranged. And um, we lived in the back room of a laundry in Queens. And we spoke uh, Cantonese there. And only on Sundays when the family went to Chinatown to get groceries and visit my grandparents that, you know, that there was a lot of talking and storytelling going around. Uh, when we were in Queens, we were told by our parents to keep away from the other kids because they were beating us up with sticks. <laughs> you know, chasing us around and calling us chink. So we stayed together. And only when I started public school that I was exposed to English. And then later on, um, for this lack of information that Oscar talks about, um, I went to the library. That was the source of information for me. Um, with the help of classmates, I would go there and take out books and, and kind of started reading from A to Z and then through the numbers. And that's how I was learned to deal with the outside world. In terms of writing, um, at home, I became the interpreter because I could gradually, by the second grade, start reading and writing. I was the person who dealt with the doctor, the dentist, um, any problems with the teachers, with the other kids. Um, I represented the family to the larger world and the community in that small section of East Elmhurst. Um, <coughs> and it wasn't, and it wasn't, um, and I didn't speak up in, in class a lot because I felt my English wasn't good enough in the classroom. So I always got report cards that said, would, would Faye please speak up more in class? Otherwise, you get all A's. <laughs> so and in, in terms of my writing, I always thought of myself as a visual artist until about maybe um, 10 years ago. Because every, since I felt I didn't have a grasp on the language, everything was through imagery, through my eyes. And I could paint with my eyes and my hands. But as I got involved with uh, other artists and writers, and I showed them my writings, they said, well, you're a poet. I said, no, that can't be. <laughs> but with encouragement of the other writers I was working with at that time in the early 70s, we had started an organization called the Basement Workshop, and it was the first um, nonprofit multi-arts organization in Chinatown. And this grew out of our activism in terms of against the Vietnam War and starting up ethnic studies courses in the city university <coughs> campuses and organizing within the community. And a lot, of, a lot of the writing at that time we wanted to do was to, to have written stories about our families' lives, which were mostly um, the, the Chinese-American working class from Chinatown and also the Japanese-Americans who had seen their families go off to the evacuation camps during World War II and we're still living through those nightmares. So we wanted to put that into writing in written form and to share it with each other and to a larger public. Cynthia, you want to come in on this? Um, sure. Um, I feel that I, you know, kind of monopolized uh, too much speech time here, but, and, and actually the, having assaulted the premise of the panel, I think it's very lovely, um, and I'm liking it. Um, but I'm, I'm most interested in what Wesley said about, he used the word, uh, create oneself, and I think this is, um, I mean, after all, this is writerly talk, 
um, one creates oneself according to one's uh, own terms is, is what we've you know, heard, heard down the line here. Um, Mary in opposition to silence. Um, and if we want to stick to you know, sociological experience, I can throw in a word or two. Um, did I feel marginal uh, as, as a growing up kid in the Northeast Bronx? You bet I was a Christ killer. I, um, actually, I couldn't tell that apart from the problem of being cross-eyed. These both were problems. <laughs> I, was, I was scared to death to walk past OLA, which was the Irish Church, Our Lady of Assumption, and St. Teresa's, the Italian church, because I was stoned both ways, and there were only two ways to get to school. Um, the teachers uh, who were Irish Catholics wouldn't let me recite Joyce Kilmer because of uh, the little crosses all in a row. Your mother wouldn't want you to uh, recite that, Cynthia, that kind of thing. I wasn't permitted to go into school with my own name. I, my mother had to go home and, uh, when I was five and a half in uh, first grade registration, get her an American name. That's why I'm stuck with this fancy Cynthia. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, so I had all these um, experiences of the, quote, minority, the, quote, uh, marginal one. My parents were not accessible uh, to me most of the time, they were in a drugstore, the two of them, and the hours uh, in, in the Depression years were from 9 a.m. till 2 a.m. Uh, and um, I used to sit down and have tea and family conversation at 2 in the morning, and my other pharmacist uncles would come and visit at that hour. But I was the only Jew in PS71. Um, my, I had no Jewish friends. I knew no Jews outside of my own uh, family. I grew up with Italian kids, Irish kids, um, Scotch Presbyterians, uh, and um, the, I mean, the point is one creates oneself, and it comes through reading fairy tales. It did for me, but that's enough. I mean, <laughs> I detect uh, two motifs that have run through all the uh, presentations so far. One is the motif of shame and embarrassment. The shame and embarrassment of living in, forgive me, a minority subculture, minority something or other, a minority community, which is perceived to be different from some American norm, the very nature of which in turn is not always clear. But it's different from something. That's one motif. And the other motif is that precisely this shame and embarrassment becomes the spur and often the very material of the writer's work. Uh, so I will contribute an anecdote of my own on the shame and embarrassment side. Uh, I grew up, my first language was Yiddish. I went to kindergarten at the age of five. The teacher tried to teach us things by holding up objects, a good way to do it. She held up a fork, and I, already wishing to distinguish myself, uh, yelled out the Yiddish word for fork, a guppel. At which point, all the other kids, probably 99% of whom were Yiddish or Jewish, uh, laughed at me because they knew why it was the wrong word. I ran home crying to my mother, uh, humiliated, saying that I would not speak Yiddish again. And until the age of 14, I held to that vow. And then afterwards, of course, in later life, as a reaction, I think, to the, exactly to this kind of experience, I became involved in the translation and editing of Yiddish literature. 
Now, this takes the, the point that, that has been emphasized here is the question of language. And I want to read you two quotations on the subject of language. One is from Delmore Schwartz. To be the child of immigrants from Eastern Europe is in itself a special kind of an experience important to a writer. He has heard two languages throughout childhood, the one spoken with ease at home, the other with ease in the streets and at school, but poorly at home. To an author, this may give a heightened sensitivity to language, a sense of idiom, and a sense of how much expresses itself through colloquialism. But it also produces in some a fear of mispronunciation, a hesitation in speech, and a sharpened focus upon the character of the parents. I think the passage gives you, in summary, a very good deal of the kind of writing which at least some of the people sitting here have done. Now, in reaction to that, here is a passage uh, from a letter by Catherine Ann Porter, a Native American writer, a very good writer, almost at times a great writer, but also a raving bigot. She speaks of a curious kind of argot, more or less originating in New York, a deadly mixture of academic, gutter snipe, gangster, fake Yiddish, and dull, old, worn-out, dirty words, an appalling bankruptcy in language, as if they hate English and are trying to destroy it, along with all other living things they touch. Now, this is not a unique statement. You will find a more genteel version of this in Henry James's The American Scene. Truman Capote repeated something like this afterward, as did other writers whom I won't name at the moment. And so you have this feeling, uh, this uh, central question, what are writers who come from a, a childhood where another language is the dominant one, what do they do to the American language, to the language that writers use? Do they enrich it? Do they impoverish it, or both? What do you think? I obviously have enriched it. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to say two things, actually six things. The issue with class I think that Mary raises is very important because I don't think uh, anything that we did with our lives was exclusive of class and what we found in our homes to be not just the cultural background, the, uh, the language, but what the aspirations of the family were for the children, what they thought they could do with their lives based on their own lives and based on the aspirations. And in, my in my family, just to go back to the, anec the anecdotes that I hated to ever bring up before, it was expected that at the height of my life I could be a post office worker. Maybe I should have stayed. Maybe I should have been a post office worker, uh, to, to less to the detriment of the English language. Um, I, I, want, I wish we'd go back to class issues at another moment. But in any case, the business of language. Um, I share something of Wesley's sensibility about the language, and I'll tell you how I mean it. Uh, to ra be raised in a family where people basically spoke Italian, not even, that's a, it's a subculture of Italian, if you will, although Sicilians would never recognize it as such. It's a language within a language. So Ita Sicilians always felt uh, a sort of um, uneasiness confronted by northern Italians, and who really spoke good Italian, Tuscan Italian. We spoke sort of Arabic and Greek. <laughs> It's true, and my mother, for example, was very loath when she was a very attractive woman and very loath to go out with um, a kind of quality gentleman because they spoke good Italian and she spoke Sicilian. She was very embarrassed and, uh, and confronted with that. So there's a whole question of language is so apparent in my life. Uh, the question of how, what, what was the form of address? Uh, what kind of mastery did you have in language? Not only was the business of Sicilian, and I also had this, uh, as face said, this business of being the translator. I had to be the translator for my grandmother. We'd go to movies, and I'd have to explain to her what was going on on the screen. It was awful. <laughs> it was terrible, because I had to 
teller in this broken Sicilian what was going on on the, on the screen, and people around me were devastated by this. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, just to go back to this business of groups within groups, uh, I was the only Gentile in a sea of Jews. So it was even more ludicrous to walk around with this grandmother who looked like something from a fiction of uh, Pirandello, uh, <laughs> speaking Sicilian in a world of people speaking Yiddish and broken English themselves in a way. In any case, the thing I want to say about this is that when you come from a home where the language is not the official language, it's not the standard language, the sense, of course, is that you are an outsider and when you speak, it'll be betrayed immediately how outsider you are and that you don't have power and you can't be part of the mainstream culture because you don't have their language. And my teachers, my, those good old school teachers in the old days who really spoke English very well and had good educations, they made it very clear you know, that you better not split an infinitive. I think the whole of my life has been spent in trying not to split an infinitive <laughs> because that meant I was an ignorant kind of oaf. And I think in part, part of my feeling about writing and uh, wanting to write beautifully is the sense of that mastery of the language, of, of somehow being not as good as the culture, but to, to, be, to better it in the way that I think that only the Irish have really done with English. I mean, they gave the English English some real wonderful shafting with Joyce and Yeats and Wilde and the rest. I mean, it's outdoing the master language. It's saying, you guys think you have the language. Watch this. We'll do everything with it. Someone else? Abasta finito. That means enough already. <laughs> Someone else? I wanted to talk about language and, and backwards marginality that I think Irish Catholics did. Um, I, I spent most of my childhood never meeting anybody who wasn't Irish Catholic. And I think what the Irish did in New York was to create a very complete world which uh, insulated them from the larger world. The priests were Irish, the nuns were Irish, everybody you knew was Irish, the politicians were Irish. Um, and there was a sense that, of, uh, which I think is very Irish, of trying to keep a pure enclave safe from the impure world. And uh, so I think there was an, an oddly mixed sense of shame and superiority. And they were very good at organizing it. Um, the other thing that I want to say about language for Catholics that grew up at the time that I was growing up, when Latin was still the, the liturgical language, was that we had access to a language that plugged us into Europe, I think, more, more efficiently than it plugged us into America. Um, we heard Latin, or I heard Latin, every day of my life. And I heard a very formal, poetic diction. Um, and uh, there were also very special words that you used at the dinner table, indulgence, um, benediction. Um, spiritual pride. You, you could be accused of experiencing spiritual pride if you rejected the mashed potatoes. I mean, the diction was, the diction was very inflated, very highly rhetorical, and 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 you heard in a very common way. Uh, uh, I mean, in, in that it was part of your holidays and your rituals. You heard Latin uh, in a way that, for me, I think was was very. Uh, very importantly, shaped the way that I thought of, ha of, of a sentence. Uh, and I think, so I think for the Irish, there is this, the, you know, the word boycott was invented by the Irish. Um, the, for the Irish, the sense of excluding oneself from the impure mix, I think, is, 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 is very important. And that sense, 
you know, I, I feel like the Joyce of the Dubliners talks about paralysis and exclusion a tremendous amount and, and, and alternate worlds that are very complete. I think that was a, that and, and hearing Latin and that very uh, heightened religious diction was very important to my formation as a writer. There was uh, something said earlier about, um, um, I guess, shame, feeling of, of being marginal or being feeling shamed. Um, I think that that while I, I think I had ambivalence about about, I mean, the sense of shame I think had for me had more to do with what seemed to be I guess imposed from the outside that there was a world that um, that had a perception about my physical presence so that language in, in some respect as I saw, as I heard it being used by um, ministers, by uncles who worked on the railroad, uh, was a way to assert themselves because they already knew or had a sense of what people thought about them. And I guess it was a sense of trying to to work against that uh, in some way, and language was a way to do that. Uh, and I guess for me, my first attempts at, at trying to, to write was in a way trying to um, be worthy of the stories that my father used to tell me about his great-grandmother or sermons that I, that I heard in church where this language would, uh, would come to life, uh, metaphors. Uh, just a, 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 a phrase like someone saying, uh, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. And just the, the, the juxtaposition of prepositions, from and at. One is demographic, the other is existential. Of course, I didn't understand that at the time, but I was, um, I was fascinated by what was, what was being expressed there, even before I was able to uh, interpret it for myself. So I think that use of language in, its, in that kind of direct way and with, its, with that simplicity was for me a standard that, uh, that even before I wrote a word that I was aware of that there was a standard uh, by which uh, I would be measured uh, when I was uh, equipped to open my mouth. Growing up where I, was, I grew up in East Elmhurst, it was a community of um, Jews and Irish and Italian Catholic people. And we were the only Chinese American family <coughs> there and living in that back room. So shame played into it partially, but then also there were like incidents of like racism. I mean, being chased around the block with, you know, by kids with sticks and then going to where teachers, I remember distinctly my fourth grade teacher telling me that I couldn't write poetry in front of the class. So that was kind of stunning. <laughs> so luckily I had uh, classmates who, who taught me to write poetry, you know, um, during our free time. And by the next year I wrote a good enough poem that the fifth grade teacher put it up on the bulletin board. <laughs> but these, these incidents um, kept recurring during the, my growing up. And it was only until when I started working with a group of young writers at the basement workshop in the early 70s that through 
I guess the bonding and sharing of these experiences and our family's experiences that we found the strength to, to start delving into these stories, personal, um, social, community, um, that we started opening up as writers. I have one story that in 74, we went up to the New York State Council and asked them for funding to fund a small uh, residency program and reading series for Asian American writers. So we were told by the staff person at that time, and this is in 74, that no Asian Americans existed in New York City. Don't you, don't you know they're all on the West Coast? <laughs> so I mean, we were so staggered that we just, we just thought, I guess we're not writers yet, and we left the meeting and continued writing among ourselves and then slowly reaching out to other writers up in the Studio Museum of Harlem or the Poetry Project, the New Eureka Cafe, the other writers that were part of the poetry movement at the time and we found support and help there. So it looks as if the um, transition to the mainstream, at least in some of these cases, was really not so easy. So let me ask um, the people on the panel you're all published writers. How do you feel if you are uh, described in hyphenated form? Uh, Saul Bellow, for example, would get extremely angry if he was called a Jewish-American writer. He said that he felt that he, Malamud, and Roth were like Hart, Schaffner, and Marx, uh, a well-known Jewish clothing firm. And perhaps he felt that being called a Jewish-American writer would keep him out of the uh, pantheon of American writing, I don't know. But uh, what is it, how do you feel now if you're described as a Chinese American or Jewish American or black American or African American or whatever? Uh, does this create any discomfort or is it something you're rather pleased with? Yeah. Sure. The thing is, if you're a serious writer, I mean, I just want to go back to the thing that people were talking about before. I grew up in a household, my parents didn't really, I mean, they spoke English, but they didn't speak a, um, a king's English, okay? You go out on the street and everybody says, hey man, give me a fucking match, open that fucking door. Hey man, did you see the ass on that fucking chick, you know? And then you're like 20 years old and you're going to city college and uh, you don't know what the fuck is going on, <laughs> right? So, you know, all this uh, stuff about writers groups and consciousness raising, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to that, I mean, what I found was books, and it was a source of information for me. So there you are, you're struggling along, you're busting your chops for 10, 15 years. I'm 38 years old. I started writing when I was 24, 25. And so, you know, you luck out, people look out for you, things are good. You bust your chops writing a book, some reviewer picks it up and says, this is a very interesting uh, book about the matrix uh, that occurs between Hispanic culture and mass American. And you're saying, what the fuck is matrix? And you gotta go, you gotta go look it up, because you never heard that word when you were growing up. What I'm saying is that <laughs> the thing that bugs writers out is that they write out a language. I mean, all the writers here are fine writers. They write out a language, they write out of serious literary concerns. I don't know a, a writer on earth who doesn't want to be James Joyce or, or someone really great. And, uh, you know, and you see yourself getting reviewed and it says, well, this fits, you know, A fits in the B. You know, these are immigrants. These are, uh, stri this book is about basic struggle. For me, you know, I think it's time that, uh, quote, ethnic novels are reviewed in terms of literature. I mean, there's no novel on earth that's written that does not require someone going from A to B to C. Doesn't matter if you're going from Cuba to New York or Ireland to New York or going from uh, your apartment to buy an aspirin on the corner. Th those are all superficial trappings in a way. 
the deep information in the novel comes from within, and I think that uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's one layer we're talking about, and it's a, it, the most frustrating thing is when reviewers cannot see below that layer. So you are in a state of total contradiction now between your early statement and <laughs> denial of hey, my I'm statement. Hey, I'm very pragmatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was saying to you is I don't think things are that, I mean, I think things are changing. I mean, um, maybe I misunderstood your sta statement, Cynthia. <laughs> It's possible. I'm not that well educated. You didn't misunderstand what can I tell you? it. You not only did you not misunderstand it, you understand it down to its essence and you wholeheartedly agree with it. Thank you. <laughs> you should run for governor. Okay, now that that's clear, let's proceed. Wesley. I don't um, I don't feel um, uncomfortable with uh, being uh, viewed as an African-American writer, because that's what I am. Um, here, here. That um, I remember Lorraine Hansberry said, some, said once that the meaning of life must be imposed on it. And so the meaning for me of my experience, which is African-American, I don't see as hyphenated. I don't see it as separate from some other experience. I believe that my experience is large enough to include uh, the world, because it is as large as the world. So um, I, I haven't, I don't feel that there is, that I experience a discomfort with, with being perceived uh, in a way that might be, which might diminish me, I guess, as a writer in some people's eyes. I guess the important thing for me is how I perceive myself, not how others perceive me. Someone else? Mm. Ms. Chang? Well, I perceive myself as an Asian-American writer but who writes as a woman, as a mother now, <laughs> um, from the working class and from a certain community. So, I mean, I write from particularities, but I hope they cross over to other people's experiences and hearts so that we share something through the writing. I agree entirely with Ms. Chang. Uh, my recollection is when I was a young man, uh, the literary circles in which I associated with, there was a tremendous hunger and rush towards something that might be called universality. We wanted very much to absorb European culture. We wanted to shake off the marks of parochialism. Uh, we wanted uh, to be recognized by European uh, colleagues. There was something admirable and good about that, but there was something bad, narrow also about it. And it, for example, it led many of us to underestimate the element of anti-Semitism in T.S. Eliot, a writer whom I then thought was the greatest poet of the time, and which I still do believe that he is the greatest poet in English of the 20th century. But nevertheless, uh, I recognize the considerable flaws, and they cause me pain, but I feel now that I've gotten to be old, that uh, I have to recognize the distinctiveness of my being. No one is a human being in general. I am, uh, and if somebody calls me a Jewish American writer, it doesn't defend me one little bit. Of course, it depends who says it. If Catherine Ann Porter's, if Catherine Ann Porter, was she still alive, were to say it, I would take offense, because I know in, what, in which spirit she meant it. But if anyone sitting at this table were to say it, it wouldn't bother me one bit. Someone else? I just wanted to say, uh, put a note of levity here. I agree with every, I agree with, uh, with absolutely everything.
everything that's been said, even the paradoxes that have been expressed. <laughs> um, I just uh, would like to disclaim Oscar Uelos as a City College graduate after his tirade, with, where he ended a sentence with a preposition. Oh, Very bad. It wasn't the fucking, it was the preposition. Uh, he, he, I think, actually went to Columbia. Mary, you want to say? Um, I, I don't mind being called an Italian-American writer if, if uh, my books keep getting published and uh, get reprinted and uh, have re you know, a certain kind of intelligent audience because it would be a subterfuge anyway. None of my books, my, own, my, my big and vast production, uh, deals with being an Italian-American, so I wouldn't care if that's you know, a kind of crazy kind of subversive strategy. I do think, however, it's a problem to try, it's a problem, it's a problem of handling and packaging, really. It's a, it's a sort of the convenient way that I suppose publishers and editors and uh, critics have in pigeonholing a work. It's, just, it's a convenience for them. But I, I, um, I think that the question of that isn't that you're an Italian who writes, the question is, or a Jew who writes, the question is, are you writing about Jewish subjects? Are you writing about Italian subjects? Are you writing about Afro-American subjects? That's up with James and going on to Hemingway and, <coughs> and Faulkner. Um, first of all, there aren't very many people who are doing what I'm interested in doing stylistically, nor is their subject matter anything that I feel a great affinity with. So, I mean, I think I feel more comfortable with the hyphenated part than the American part. Cynthia, you want to say? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, um, Irving, you know, anti-Semitism is irrelevant to me as a writer. Um, I, I think I've been consistent to, in, since childhood, that of course, though of course I perceived it very differently as a child. Um, when you said earlier, that's why I said Irving, because I'm really addressing you on this, but was, when you said earlier, you gave us a hypothesis of uh, shame and embarrassment, and I think Fred said something about class. Well, it's true that in the world of reality, you might say, in the world of phenomena, in the world of dailiness and the quotidian discomforts of being a, a, a living uh, creature who is the only one of its kind um, in, in a certain society, um, I may have been um, uh, shamed and embarrassed and uh, sometimes uh, wounded, and I don't mean emotionally, I mean, if you know, get hit with a rock, it hurts. Uh, but um, at the same time, I was living much, with much more reality in my sense of myself uh, as, as a Jew. And though these, I'm about to utter some very fancy words, namely the metaphysics of monotheism, this is what I knew and felt and saw and uh, lived through as a child. And I also knew that the culture, that culture is so, I, well, I, I, I shouldn't, go backward to childhood. I'll, I'll say it in my own, my own voice uh, now. If it's true that oppression belongs to the culture of the, uh, of the oppressor, well, it has nothing to do with you, and it's certainly not a real subject. A real subject is, as I come back to Wellesley, what you, what you create yourself, whether as an individual, as a writer, or whether as a collectivity, um, as, as, a, as a cultural group. It's something that you make yourself. It's ideas that you invent that haven't been invented before. And, and that, that's what culture is. Culture is not a response. The body responds uh, to what's uh, done unto it. Culture is made out of mind. Cynthia, you think Richard Wright's native son was not a response to what was happening to blacks in the United States? 
Yes, it was a response, and you know, I saw that film, uh, the film of it on Channel 13 very recently. No, not the film. Uh, no, no, the and book, then I the went book. to read the book for the first, for the first time. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Um, I, I agree it was, but if, if African-American literature stopped, stopped only at this kind of reaction, which is valuable, of course, it's enormously moving and important, and it's part of history. But if it stopped only at this, it would not be sufficient as to, to, uh, for, for a Jew to write only about anti-Semitism is not, is not, I hate the word creative, but it's not creatively uh, sufficient. Or if, if, you're, if you spend your life running away, I mean, for instance, I think Norman Mailer, I've said this before, and I'm always happy to say it again, is one of the greatest cowards on earth. For, uh, and, and I'll tell you specifically why. He's, a fr he's gone everywhere on the face of this globe. I mean, if you're in Timbuktu and you send Norman Mailer an invitation, he will come. He wants to see what Timbuktu looks like. If, but if you're and he'll find Norman Mailer. Uh, <laughs> well, that's something else. But, but uh, Norman Mailer has had uh, millions of invitations from Israeli pen, Israeli writers. He won't set foot in Israel. He's scared to. People might think he's a Jew if he does that. Someone else? Someone else? Uh, let me, let me uh, put one more question, after which I'll throw the floor open to the audience. Um, well, maybe we'll throw the floor open to the audience right now. Let me ask this, uh, that you ask questions, please. A statement which ends with a rising inflection of a voice is not a question. Uh, if you want to ask a question, come up to this microphone and say which of the panelists you're asking it of. You look at whomever you find I'll pleasing. Here. I, I, I was thinking of this question. I said I want to answer it to anybody who wants to answer it, because it's what I was came here to find out. I mean, one of the things I was wondering about. It seems to me that when you use the language in the special way that your group uses language, that you have two audiences at least. One is that group, and the other is the kind of larger English-speaking culture. And one of the things that I've noticed is that people in that larger English-speaking culture often say, I wish I could speak like you can. I wish that I, ha I had that expressive language and I wasn't stuck with English, just plain English. And I just wanted to know what, what people thought of that question. <laughs> He's that way sometimes, but... Uh, <laughs> Get to the mic. I don't um, know. I think all kinds of folks speak the way they speak. And uh, um, there's sort of a universe universalized uh, diction that happens when you get educated, but some of us try to mess it up, keep it consistent with our past. But uh, I, I think that's more personal. I mean, I've seen people who uh, speak uh, like nuts privately, and when they're in public, they're great. Fred? <laughs> I forgot which order, which order was that in. Publicly, he's great, but privately, he's nuts. I forgot. Both in this case. Um, when Mr. Howe asked originally, what did the language do, or do you think it did to shape um, your writing? Um, I thought, and I would say this in part joke, but in a way that I believe, is it also true as a joke, true for life, for me. Um, and maybe it goes to Mr. Uh, 
of the question just posed. Um, the language I heard was lyrical, sentimental, violent, shriek-filled, um, curses, um, please, and then long silences, where the silences were meant to be forms of threat or some kind of mystery. And I like to think that's what my writing does. Someone else? Well, I, th I think you use what you have and what, what you want, what you have and what you grow up with. And um, that's, that's what you want to say, what, whatever is what you connect to and what is most direct and clear. And with, with like my background, the first language was Cantonese. So when I write sometimes, I even hear it in Cantonese before English. Someone else? Uh, just a word. I think one of the great American novels is Henry Roth's Call It Sleep. There are long passages in Call It... Don't applaud me. I, I'm not, unfortunately, I didn't write it. <laughs> uh, one of the, there are long passages in Call It Sleep, which anyone who knows Yiddish reads uh, on a dual level. You, you read the English, which is a little distorted. It doesn't follow the proper rules of syntax. It's a little twisted uh, syntactically. But you can, as you read the English, hear the translation of this in Yiddish, if you know Yiddish. And this, of course, adds a considerable enrichment uh, to, to that kind of a reader. Now, of course, if I read uh, a novel uh, in which the, so to speak, the Ur language is one that I don't know, then I'm probably going to miss that. But there's a pleasure in entering, in trying to cope with a work where you don't know the Ur language, and that's why the intermixture, if you don't like melting pot, the intermixture of these um, subcultural communities has a great value. You know, it's very easy to sentimentalize this tube. I mean, uh, Cantonese, uh, Yiddish, uh, uh, Black English, uh, it Italian English, Irish uh, silence, Latin uh, majesty, um, um, uh, Hispanic um, sounds, and so on. I mean, the point is, we're all sitting up here as a bunch of English majors. We are saturated in English and American literature. We've all taken the Chaucer co course. I mean, we re I mean, why are we leaving out our education, for God's sakes? That's really, that's really the substratum of our, of our language. It's not, it's not Yiddish, it's not, I mean, we, we're educated. This is literature. We are us. using our education in order to find out something about the origins of ourselves. Well, I think it's a mistake to, to make this an either or thing. Uh, and I think that, uh, I think that Cynthia's right, that the danger of sentimentality is, is very great. And in fact, what makes us, the reason why we all left home, because the other thing that we're talking about is the process of leaving home, is because we went to college and read Chaucer. And you didn't go back home and talk about Chaucer to your mother in the, living, in the kitchen over the oilcloth. Um, that, that was really what separated you as a writer from, from the storyteller. Yes, but It opened you out to a larger world. Mary, and, and a writer like Delmore Schwartz, it was the experience of reading Chaucer which enabled him to write stories about his mother back home. Yes, so okay, I think it goes Another question? Someone else? Yes. Uh, I wish I had a 
tape recorder to uh, find out what the answers would be. Uh, uh, but I'd like to have uh, a female before me because I haven't. S Is there anybody who wants to? Was a female before? Does a female want to volunteer to come before him? <laughs> I just um, find myself agreeing so much with Ms. Ozick about everything, and I want to ask, uh, the, address the question to her. Um, I, I completely understand about the universality of the writing and the transcending. Uh, whatever so-called uh, uh, minority or group one comes from. I wonder though, and as I'm a great fan of, of, of hers, um, if however your, your great knowledge and, and interest, not in necessarily just Jewish background, but Judaism and, and the religion of, 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 you know, of Judaism, uh, doesn't really, you don't feel affects or permeates and directs your writing, because in, in my understanding it does. I've, I've gained a great deal of, of understanding and perception of, of Judaism through reading you. Well, I'm not speaking of universalism. In fact, I'm again it. Uh, I, mean, that w I mean, we can't, uh, I, I really agree with, with uh, Irving, though it doesn't sound like it. No, uh, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously we, uh, we are individuals enriched by our cultural backgrounds, um, and and we can't wash it all away uh, and and whitewash it all away. In fact, um, and what 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 I mean is culture in a plural. Well, okay, that's enough. I I, <laughs> I think that that's the end of it. I'm not for universalism. I'm for I'm for uh, the culture of groups. My, my problem is that I will not accede to the fact that we are minorities. Uh, we are not minorities. We all have access to the language of this society and what we bring uh, to it and uh, um, enriches it. I mean, these are dreadful cliches, so I better stop. Well, thank okay. you. And as Emily Dickinson said, the soul selects its own society, so that's part okay. of it. Okay. Now, a female having preceded you. Um, <laughs> It seems like uh, Cynthia doesn't like the word the ism in uh, universalism uh, and the ism of Judaism as a uh, as a wholeness. But the question uh, has to do with how uh, each ethnic uh, person uh, would see his ethnic pride. I me mine ethnic pride. The I me mine ethnic guilt. The I, me, mine, ethnic denial. And each one is talking about their own particular culture as I, me, mine. And without universality, I, I just don't know, understand uh, if there is a question. The question has to do with the, the three uh, ethnic problems as I see it, guilt, denial, and pride. I think we've sort of canvassed that already, but is there anyone who wants to take a crack at answering the question? <laughs> okay, someone else. Yeah, I'm having a little difficulty with uh, something that uh, Cynthia Oizek, I said I'm having a little difficulty with something that Cynthia Oizek said about the metaphysics of monotheism, because uh, in the neighborhood where I grew up, it was uh, one of these, uh, mixed New York neighborhoods, one-third Jewish, one-third Italian, and one-third Irish. And uh, 
uh, as I was breaking with the notion of the great ham hater in the sky, the uh, Catholic kids were sick and tired of fish on Friday and praying in that Latin, and we all looked at it as that stuff from the 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago in another continent got nothing to do with the world of stickball, okay? And that basically is, I, I, when I listen to this, I, it sounds like a, a conference of children's story writers, everybody talking about their past, how they grew up instead of where we are now, you know? Uh, someone said that they couldn't relate to uh, Mark Twain, was it? American no, I didn't say Mark Twain. Well, all right, but American okay. literature. Go, go live in Gasconade okay. County in Missouri. Please ask a question. Okay, and the question is, which way are we going? Yes. Forward or back? Because all this ethnicity is dying in America. Everybody speaks English now, yes, sir, et cetera, that's et cetera. pure okay, rubbish. Thank you very much. That is you pure rubbish. You have just heard rubbish. an authentically American voice. Uh, <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. I have one more word to add. On the question of going back, childhood is one of the great dominant perennial subjects of literature. Graham Greene once made a wonderful wisecrack. He said, an unhappy childhood is a writer's gold mine. Uh, I have three questions. I don't let's know. take one, huh? Okay, then I'll come back. Okay. Maybe. Uh, as far as... As far as Ms. Ozick, I think she's right with regard to Norman Mailer. He's got two topics, either war or Judaism. Either one will get him the Nobel. But if he won't go and, and work with either, he's out of luck. Uh, I have a question. Ms. Ozick, you are saying here that writer, American writers, regardless of their, their hyphenated backgrounds, should speak, uh, should write in English. T about two years ago, you published at least one essay wherein you were furious that an Israeli Arab wrote a book which was published in Hebrew. Not so. You're are you still furious entirely. at that? You are misrepresenting entirely. Irving Howe was at that same conference. He is my witness. I never criticized Anton Shamas for his, uh, his uh, uh, having written a, a novel in Hebrew. Never. I have to admit she's right. <laughs> Um, this question, uh, it may run about a minute or two, uh, it addresses a topic that I don't think that you addressed in your talk, but it was, has been an issue for Le Pen, and it is certainly an issue about, uh, for ethnic uh, ethnicity and writing, which is the Salman Rushdie affair. Uh, in many ways, you could read the affair not only as an issue of free speech, but also as an issue of community and ethnicity. He came from a certain background, and he wrote a book that he knew certainly would provoke incredible response and so on and so forth. And I think there's something actually sort of fishy about the Salman Rushdie affair, but what I'm concerned about is how it is that liberals have responded to it. My question is, if, if people have compared him to Garcia Marquez, like La Mala Ora, for example, what, do you see anything in the notion that uh, ethnic sensibilities uh, should be regulated in writing, that somehow mahound is a term that cannot, I mean, what is, what is the concern or feeling about how the issue has been used or, or might be perceived by liberals and whether they really mobilize in favor of freedom of expression? 
I can hardly speak for liberals or all liberals, but let me just say one word. The Rushdie affair seems to me the simplest of all things, namely that a man or a woman writer should not be shot or threatened with death because he or she has written a bad book. <laughs> Say, I, can you hear me? I, hello? Yeah. Hello? There's even the issue of whether they're coming out in paperback. Uh, the pay company's reluctant to do that. Unlike Mr. Howe, I, um, I have no sympathy for bad writing. And I think, I mean, I say sympathy meaning a large heart to accept in a Catholic embrace the bad as well as the good. And I think that short of shooting, there must be other solutions, right. such as stop publishing them. Right. Uh, it's just too much of it, too much junk. And the, right. under one e any rubric, under any name, too much meretricious, paltry, silly junk. So okay. whether, it, I'm not speaking about Rushdie, by the way. I just okay. can't read him, that's another matter. Next question, please. But can we have some questions that have some relationship to the announced topic? <laughs> uh, I'll try to make this relate. <clears throat> it's, it, I've, I've heard a number of panels attempting to grapple with these issues, and this is one of the most appealing and eloquent. Um, I guess what's starting to intrigue me is the thought of all of us going forward in time and, and being Americans and continuing to evolve into what is now being described as sort of multicultural or pluralistic culture, and yet as we do that, it seems that we're taking an increasing interest in this kind of suddenly we each discover how exotic we are and sort of the contemplation of our own otherness. And I just wondered if some of you might relate to that and address that as what, what kind of funny country will we become where we have, I don't know if, I'm, if, if this is even clear what I'm, what I'm getting at, but where we, um, we look at the fragments. And I guess it was something that you said, Fred, that, that sparked this idea. Do you all feel that you must write about your own culture, that if you're an Irish Catholic writer, you write about that, or that you write about your own background? Or can you be a Jewish or an Afro-African-American or, or Asian-American writer writing about the others? Or how does the other see the other? Can, do, can we as a culture begin to be a group of others thinking okay, about otherness and not just our own Good. same otherness? Someone want to answer? Yes. You better say that again, please, because it was a good answer. Yes. <laughs> Someone else? So then why not? Any further questions? Why not? Yes, why not? Why not get off the, uh, the protectionist... Uh, you want to ask a question, you've got to stand up and come over here. I stood up and came over here. Give me a break, huh? Um, this... I, I just wanted to ask, uh, this, this panel is supposed to be New York writers, et cetera, et cetera. There's been very little talk, except um, Wesley and Oscar sort of touched on it a little, yeah. of the New York experience. That's true. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. the In fact, I was going to ask about the, the whole question of New York and writing, but I felt that we were uh, going on too long, and therefore I cut it out. But now it's an occasion for some of you who want to say something. What does it feel like to be a New York writer? Or what does it mean to be a New York writer? Do you feel that New York has played, in quotes, a mythic part in your experience and in your work the way it did for many earlier American writers? I think that uh, I, I can't imagine myself as writing out of anything other than the New York experience. It's the only America that has any reality for me. 
and occasionally uh, uh, I, I, I do understand that you know there is all that dairy out there but um, <laughs> that's the best thing to <laughs> I, I just, uh, to me, important real uh, life, This and it is this press of ethnicity, and I think it's the combination of ethnicity and intellectual seriousness that happens only in New York. Other places have, I guess, the ethnic mix, but, is, but it is the combination of having the most uh, highly dedicated artists and, and thinkers and the greatest mix of language and and, and, and visual difference that makes New York to me, um, th you know, I, I, I just don't, can imagine myself coming from anywhere else. Anyone else? Okay, uh, we'll take, oh, I'm sorry. No, sorry. Okay, I'll take, we'll take one more question. Um, earlier in the discussion, the question of class came up, and I was wondering if anyone on the panel had any reflection on the fact that everyone here seems to come from about a working class background and whether you think your ethnic identity would have survived if you had, say, been brought up in the middle class or in the suburbs? Uh, that's an interesting question. You all hear it, that we all seem to come from working class families and uh, would we have been able to survive as writers if we had come from suburbs? Uh, <laughs> for Mary, the dairy areas. <laughs> uh, does anyone want to take a crack at that? Because I have a nice story about Big Bill Haywood and the working class. You have a story about what? I'm sorry? Big Bill Haywood. Do you know who that yeah, is? I do, I do. Yeah, good. IWW. Right. I wanted to say a couple of, but this machine isn't working. Is it? Okay. Um, the class business. Um, it's, I have no coherent sentence except to say that um, for me, the, the, the New York is, uh, the chauvinism of New York is what I may feel personally, but I do decry it as a nation. I think there's some magnificent writing, has been magnificent writing, is magnificent writing being done outside of this literary politicianville. I mean, maybe we have the best literary politicians in, in the United States, but not necessarily the best writers. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is about, um, in fact, to say another matter of this business of uh, origins and city, city breaks itself up. It's not just New York City, it's Manhattan, it's Bronx, it's Queens, it's Brooklyn. Each of us raised in different boroughs have a different city, a different vision of that city, a different language for the city. Uh, the third thing, class, I would not have survived if I didn't come from a working class background. No question of it. I think that the anger of the working class, the justifiable anger of the working class, uh, the memory of that anger for me is potent and uh, I hope I never forget that anger. It's, uh, it's the impetus, it's the motor for lots of the work. I think if I had gone to the suburbs and had come from a Milanese family, a nice upper middle class northern Italian family, I would be now, I'm afraid to say what? Porsche. No. Else? That anger of Fred was uh, sort of nourished in the coops. I mean, my parents were too tired to be angry. Someone else? Uh, Fred, about literary politicians. You know, New York can't compete with the South when it comes to literary politicians. And a good many of the literary politicians in New York come from the South. They flourish uh, in the city. Yeah. I just want to slightly defend myself. It's not that I think that, uh, that writing can't be done in other parts of the country. I simply couldn't imagine myself writing anything at all like what I write having come from anywhere else. I mean, I know they are doing it out there, but, <laughs> and sometimes very well, but 
uh, I just meant to speak about myself, not to say that okay. this is the only place it's happening. Not anyone, about you, anyone else on the panel want Ms. Chang? No, uh, I feel similarly. I, I write when I'm in New York. Okay. Well, okay, that's it. Thank you. Thank you.